I'd like to welcome to the CGOA podcast, Cliff Berrickman. Many of you know Cliff from nine seasons, I think, of Discovery Channel's Finding Bigfoot. Nine seasons, is that correct? Nine? I don't know. I don't know. Seasons, like are, seasons are made up by the network. You right. know, not, they don't and it's not really nine years, exist. for sure. Well, actually, it was. Uh, we filmed the pilot in 2010 <laughs> and aired the last one in 2018, if you don't count the special that came out. so That's, that's true. That's um, you count on your fingers, I guess. Yeah, and Cliff is also the um, owner and operator of the North American Bigfoot Center in Boring, uh, which is a fantastic museum. We'll talk a lot more about that later, but certainly encourage people to check that out. It's a, it's a great place if you have any interest in Bigfoot or cryptids. And he also does a podcast with fellow alumni uh, James Boba Fay called Bigfoot and Beyond, correct? That's the name of it. Yeah, Big Fit and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We put our names in the titles. It'd be easy to find. Yeah. Very, it's very entertaining. Listen to it all the time. Um, so welcome. Thanks for being yeah. here. Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks for having yeah. me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you know, we this is a music-oriented podcast, right? Because it's oh, good. orchestra association. So I, I got to start with a little music talk. I know you're a jazz guitarist. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm, I got a degree in music um, back in the day. You know, I worked hard at that. Um, and I eventually went on, became an elementary school teacher and whatever else, but, you know, to become an elementary school teacher, you have a couple options. You can either major in something called liberal studies, but I'm not even sure what that is. And it didn't sound fun or cool, or you can major in one specific thing and then take some tests to show that you're proficient in all sorts of things. Right. Well, um, I'm a jack of all trades. I'm an expert in none. Um, so I decided, well, you know what, let's, I'm going to get a degree in something I really want to be good at, which and it ended up studying, I ended up studying jazz at Cal State Long Beach under the tutelage of um, a guy named Ron Esch. Mm -hmm. who is a master seven string guitar player and one of the best guitarists in my opinion probably ever um he's he's kind of one of those unsung heroes you know he took lessons himself from joe pass um who most people know who joe pass is but um joe, ron was yeah he had he was a front man in a couple projects but really his thing is making everyone else sound good and that's one of the most important lessons i learned um while taking lessons from ron he says yeah i can play i know chordal structure i know harmony i know all that sort of stuff but at the end of the day if somebody notices you and you're not your name isn't on the bill you're not doing it right because uh, I mean, there's times to be flashy, of course, but your your job as a musician is to make the person who hired you sound good, and I think that's important. Yeah, I, interestingly enough, this is the six degrees of separation thing. My wife, when she was a librarian, worked with Joe Pass's ex-wife. Oh, no kidding! No yeah. kidding. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I was raised. I, I grew up in Torrance and Redondo Beach. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So we're nearby. We're both music people and we're both teachers right so we we have a lot in common that way um did you what, what kind of format were you playing in trios in big band jazz with everything well what, I, what was your, I played what was your band. format i did big band when i was in college i was mm -hmm. in like the, the one band or whatever they called it mm -hmm. uh, but ever since then, it's, you know, it's like uh, i did a lot of solo stuff um mm -hmm. because that's one of the benefits of a seven string jazz guitar is that it has a low low string on it it's a low a if, if for any guitar players out there right. so um you don't have to change any of the chord voicing you know shapes with your finger you can just drop it down another string and have a, an, an entire other octave lower so that um really opens the door for chord melody work so i've done um, when i was working um I, didn't, I haven't done a ton of work as a musician but i've certainly certainly, you know, done gigs, um, you know, by myself, like at, at restaurants and bars and stuff like that, you know, for money um, in a professional setting. So um, those I always try to do alone or in uh, maybe a duet because the pay is better at the end of the day. But I've been in more than my fair share of bands as well over the years, you know, from when I was in high school and I didn't know what I was doing guitar yet all the way up until, you know, I was doing some really 
peculiar quirky sort of Zeppa-esque Primus sort of angular monk influenced rock stuff. Yeah, I was I'm thinking, not even sure what that with, stuff with was. With the seven so. string, man, you start to explore like alternative tunings with the seven string that would kind of blow your mind. I never right? liked it, you know, because yeah. I, I never got the hang. I, I never really changed my guitar tuning so much. You know, I played mm-hmm. a little bit with the open tunings, but um, I, I mean, I was ne- I, I never really felt I got the hang of the traditional tuning well enough to actually change it. You know, <laughs> yeah, let me get really, really, really good at that one. But then again, I know very few musicians who think they're good enough who aren't trying to hone their craft. So oh, for sure. Are you still playing? I try. I, I try to. I try. Um, Bigfoot has really taken up most of my time. I don't hop on the guitar as much as I'd like. Um, I, I do have another friend. Um, his name's Nate. And uh, I went to music school with him and he just moved over to Washington. So he's about an hour away or something like that. So we try to get together every couple of weeks and, you know, play through some charts and that sort of stuff. And, and really my schedule is prohibitive as well. Cause I'm so busy. I, I'm, I, I, when, before we started recording, I comment, you asked how I was and I said busier than I'd like to be. Right. And that's kind of the way I've been rolling lately um, between owning a business, running the podcast. And, you know, people think, Oh, you only have to talk an hour a week how bad can a podcast be well i have to schedule bobo and um that's not exactly that's the challenge easy. right there right well yeah because you know you if you've seen the tv show you know bobo yeah um it might be a little bit of a challenge to nail him down for some stuff you know and, and then of course i'm on the road a lot i just got back from tennessee this past weekend um that's the second to last away gig i have i've got to go to kentucky here in a few weeks but i have a nice long three-week break nice. um, between these two jobs so yeah i'm it's extraordinarily busy um and i wish i wasn't I'm trying to kind of say no to some things and pull back from some stuff and, you know, but that's very hard for me because I, I tend to give more than I have. Unfortunately, Yeah. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to learn that skill myself. Well, yeah, it's just a mental health thing, you know, right, like, like sure. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be stressed out at night when I have nothing to do because of what I have to do in the near future. And, and mm-hmm. so I, I've found myself I've been a little stressed out lately about um, things that are like next week or whatever. And say, well, I've, I've overcommitted myself. So I need to, you know, just a little self-care. I think mm-hmm. we all, we all get to that point, mm-hmm. but it's not yeah. easy to make a living on a Bigfoot thing. So I'm very, very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, hustling yeah, sure. and stuff, but. <laughs> That's true. Um, just before we get into the Bigfoot thing, um, who are you? Who are your influences as a, as a guitarist? Who do you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, obviously, Ron was a huge influence and Joe Pass, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go outside of uh, the jazz realm, um, I think I was probably very influenced by, frankly, Oingo Boingo. Okay. Um, you know, the, the 80s band or whatever. Danny Elfman, very, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, particularly uh, Steve Bartek, the guitar uh-huh. player there. Um, he was a guitar player for Oingo Boingo. And, um, you know, and they're not they're not your average pop band. I mean, they may sound like it and stuff, but Danny Elfman was at the helm there and he's in pretty ingenious composer in many ways and um what he did in the music like you know there'd be measures of seven eight in the middle of the song and then like a very peculiar um harmonies and so so that kind of stuff and any of the guitar players that ever played for steely dan um steely dan in general was a very big influence on me um Mm -hmm. because of that sort of new york jazz thing in a in a in a rock format that's very subversive and they you know they're playing in in elevators but like what what they're singing about is very inappropriate so um i I really enjoyed that kind of stuff too so and And, if you want to talk and hyper polished too you know oh yeah yeah you know so they have that that element of anarchy but it's extremely tight and you know, yeah, controlled place, anarchy really is what control. it is. Mm, yeah, absolutely. subversive controlled anarchy where, mm-hmm. you know, you're not quite sure what finger they're showing you, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, I really, I listened to a podcast interview with um, Danny Elfman and he went through the whole history of Wango Boingo. Pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Started with, with, that with that his movie, brother with that movie and, and stuff. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo and stuff, and they they were uh, they were pushing the limits even from the early days. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty interesting. Oh, okay, so here's a question: Bridge the gap. What's the connective tissue between jazz, your interest in music, and Bigfoot? Well, you know, I guess it would have to be, um, I, again, I, I became an elementary school teacher. I majored in music because you had to major in something. Um, and I went on to be an elementary school teacher. And I started in uh, the Bay Area, then moved back home to Southern California for a while, then eventually achieved escape velocity and got out. Um, but essentially, that gave me summers off to go poking around in the woods. Um, and uh, I never worked summer school or anything. I, I you know, just... I wasn't interested in doing that sort of thing. I need, I need, I personally need a lot of space and time in my life for me to proceed well. Um, so I, I would spend most of the summers in the woods essentially. Um, but when I was in college going to music school at Cal state long beach, the music department was way on one side of campus. And of course I had to take things outside of the music sphere. So I was on the other side of campus, um, this one term. And I found myself with a break. It was like two or three hours. I can't remember how long it was, but it was just long enough where it didn't make sense for me to go back to the other side of campus because the campus was so large. It took 40 minutes to walk oh, yeah. from one side mm-hmm. to the other, you know? Um, so I just long enough of a break where I it seemed like a waste of time to go back. I couldn't get off campus because my car was in the music department area. Um, and so what I did is I, I basically went to the library and Cal State Long Beach has a wonderful library and I would wander through the stacks and pull books off of the shelf in subjects that I was interested in, mostly sciences. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a science nerd. I, I just really enjoy learning and science and astronomy and, bi- and marine biology and all sorts of stuff. And then uh, one day I found myself in the anthropology section and I came across a compilation of journal articles written about Sasquatches um, from the perspective of scientists. Mm-hmm. I said, Oh, this is interesting. And I, I've always been interested in the Bigfoot thing, but just like I was interested in, in Atlantis and UFOs and the crystal skulls and weird stuff, but I never really necessarily took it seriously beyond like, that would be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I never knew the science behind it until I ran across this book. And then I, right. I, I read there that. was even science behind it. All right. Yeah. That was right. a, a, an amazing thing for me to discover as well. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I basically plowed through that book pretty quick, found another book just like it. Um, and then I started reading books. I think the next book I ran across was uh, Dr. Krantz's book on the subject. And then I started doing the John Green books. And then before long, once you're actually exposed to the evidence and you're starting to think about these things before long, you're kind of asking yourself, how could this not be real? Like how, and like, because there's questions like, you know, like, how is it that I, I'm going to say literally, because I think it's true. Literally every indigenous tribe in North America has stories of giant hair covered people like things in the woods mm-hmm. outside of town, mm-hmm. you know, from, from Florida to Maine to British Columbia. Um, it doesn't matter. And they, they're internally congruent description and behaviors. Like how could that be true? You know, were the native people conspiring against the genocidal wave coming from Europe that they didn't know was coming? And it's like, let's get ahead of these guys and fool them now. No, that doesn't make sense. Like, how could it be true that um, when uh, when anthropologists have kind of looked at the footprints and found markers in the footprints, landmarks, that they can kind of re kind of kind of uh, um, remake the bone structure, I guess is a good way of saying it. Um, the, the bone morphology underneath the skin based on these landmarks that they can observe in the footprints. Well, it turns out that they're, they're different than humans and the way that they are different than human foot structure is exactly the way that would be necessary to carry a biped of their mass in a bipedal fashion. Mm-hmm. Again, are the hoaxers so well, are, are the hoaxers aware of human biomechanics and foot morphology 
And were they talking to each other to plant these subtleties in the footprints? I doubt it. I, 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 I mean, they might be now because all that information is out there, but they certainly weren't at the beginning. No, of, no, they, they weren't, weren't in at the all. 19th century, in the early 20th century. Well, no, no. Mm. And we have footprint casts. The, 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 the earliest footprint cast is still in existence. It's from 1958. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that footprint shows the features that weren't published until 1999 when Dr. Meldrum published his work mm-hmm. on the midfoot flexibility of the foot. And uh, Dr. Krantz um, uh, reconstructed the foot, foot bone morphology based on the Bosberg footprints. And those were left in the winter of 1969. But yet we can see those same things in the, in the footprint cast from the 50s. And all through the early 60s. And that, that seems remarkable to me. Um, it sound, in fact, it, it seems ridiculous that it would be uh, attrib- attributable to anything but evolution. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, once I realized, like, oh, my God, these things are probably real. I, I mean, they're, they're not just some, you know, so- sociological icon or some, you know, Jungian archetype or something. They're like real animals. Um, that's when I decided, well, I'm already camping and and backpacking and stuff. I'm just going to start doing that in places where people have seen Sasquatches and see what happens. And I, I I just got lucky. I found footprints and stuff on the first time out. Um, yeah. So I I just, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And And that hooked you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here I am 27 or so years later, you know, drowning in the subject. Yeah. Speaking of drowning in the subject, let's talk about the museum really quick. Mm -hmm. Um, where does the collection come from? Is it mostly your stuff or things you went out and uh, found to bring back? I mean, how did you acquire your collection little, for the museum? A little, little bit of everything. A mm-hmm. little bit of everything. Yeah, I started. See, I, I, I am fascinated by the evidence, by the physical evidence. I know you have a, a very large uh, cast collection. Yeah, I started collecting footprint casts. Um, actually, my first my first cast was actually a knuckle cast from the Paul Freeman collection, and mm-hmm. he, he got in 1982. I got the cast in like mid 90s, sometime. It wasn't too long. The very early days of the internet, um, Dr. Krantz was selling some footprint casts online, and I, I got two. I think from Dr. Krantz um, at the time. I got a uh, the knuckle print from 1982 in the Paul Freeman collection, and then I got a, a, a right foot from the Patterson Gimlin film. Um, those are my first two casts, um, and I was broke at the time. I think. 20 bucks was a big spend for me at the time. So um, I, I couldn't, I didn't even get them at the same time. I couldn't afford it, you know, but, um, and then from there, I, I somebody else had a cast and I learned how to make a, a, a mold inside like wet sand and poured that. And then, um, and then from there, just kind of slowly snowballed and next. And now here, you know, quite a, quite a few years later, I've, I don't know, I have 300 or so. I'm, I'm not really sure how many we have. Dr. Meldrum and I talk about that sometimes. Like how many do you think it is now? So I don't know. Uh, it also depends how you count them, whether you include a human cast for comparison purposes or fake casts that we know are fake or a ring pendek cast or other casts from uh, other animals in you know, other parts of the world, mm-hmm. but yeah, 300 or so. Um, so a lot of them come from, uh, you know, and I think that the casts are important evidence and I want to kind of highlight those in the museum because I have a lot of them. First of all, it's easy. Mm-hmm. It's easy for me to do because I have so many, um, but also um, I, I think it's striking evidence that once you understand how the Sasquatch foot works and how it's different than humans and why it's different than humans, why that's a necessity. And you're seeing all these casts from all these different parts of the country and and indeed the world in some cases cast by different people in different places at different times. And they're all internally congruent. That's significant. I think that's a very significant thing. Um, And and other, of course, being a, a Bigfooter for so long as well, 
you know, I spent the first probably eight or nine years of my Bigfoot career just doing it alone or with my close friends who weren't really in the Bigfoot community. Mm-hmm. And then I eventually started branching out and meeting other Bigfooters and being invited on trips. And that happened in the early 2000s, like maybe 2000 or 2001 or something. Um, and then, uh, and then I, so I started meeting a lot of people. And I'm very fortunate that I, you know, I haven't stepped on too many toes and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And people seem to like me or tolerate me well, at least. Um, so uh, they, they, a lot of people have been very generous um, with their evidence and sharing their research with me um, and kind of putting our heads together. And uh, so a lot of the other re- stuff in, our, in the museum here comes from other researchers who I know and trust and like, and I consider friends. You guys just did an expansion, right? You're in the middle of doing that? Oh, just no. Yeah, we did the little expansion. A little yeah, mm-hmm. just a little bit. We'll probably put up another uh, dozen or so displays. Um, we're, see, we're kind of trapped in a fairly small building. Um, right. And uh, it's, it's, it was an old motorcycle garage is what mm-hmm. it was. So we have real high ceilings in the back and a nice big area for displays. But still, you know, it's not my building. I'm leasing it. Yep. So when I can't build out. So um, right now we're using our space as, as wisely as we can. We have a little bit more room. There's this nice closet that we haven't pushed into yet. And when I say closet, it's about it's about 20 feet long and about eight feet wide. So that'll give us uh, another probably dozen or more displays um, yes. once, once we get that done too. So we have a little bit more room and then we can start building like up a little bit and like, try to put things out of line of sight, pushing it up. And yeah, it's too bad. From- it's too bad. You can't build out or around. That would be, because it's a nice, it's a great location. Yeah. Yeah. I like the location expand. a lot. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if uh, I'll ever be allowed to buy the building or if I'll have to move eventually, if another building comes up, mm-hmm. um, if a, a better location, but um, I, I, for now I'm real happy here. And I think we can pack this place full. Uh, my goal is to eventually when people walk in, I want them to get smacked in the face by like, wow, there's a lot of stuff here, but not in a cluttered sort of way. I want to avoid right, the, cl- right, right. the clutter. And talk about I, Murphy a little bit. Murphy is oh, very yeah. impressive. I love Murphy. Yeah, Murphy. Uh, Murphy is our life-size realistic Sasquatch uh, mm-hmm. model, I guess. It's made out, he, he is made out of foam. He's about seven and a half feet tall. Um, he was made by a creature, you know, monster maker out in uh, Columbus, Ohio, a gentleman named Bo Bruns, who runs a, um, a monster making studio called C- Unit, Unit 70 Productions or okay. Unit 70 Studios. I can't remember which one. Um, yeah, and uh, he brought, uh, Bo brought, Murphy to the Ohio Bigfoot conference a number of years ago when I was speaking there. And um, and when I saw the model, I said, wow, that is by far the best one I've ever seen. Because uh, there's a lot of models, like the one behind you on the screen, for example, um, that 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 they're they're cute, they're fun, but they don't look like a real Bigfoot. Nest, no, no, you know, yeah, they're no. they're it's, they're kind of cartoonish in a way, right? And um and and so when I saw Bo's masterpiece, I went, wow, that's fantastic. And then um uh, Mark DeWorth, the organizer of the event, introduced me to Bo Bruns, and um and I said, hey, what would it take to get this? We struck a deal with each other. And um, basically he shipped it out. Now it's here and it is a fantastic model. It, 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 he sculpted it. In fact, on our display in front of Murphy, we have pictures of uh, Bo Bruns actually making Murphy yes, and, and the I process that. Uh-huh. that he did. Um, but yeah, he, it's basically injection foam that has hair individually placed, I think, all over the model. He's seven and a half feet tall. And um, uh, right now I'm actually, I, I'm, I commissioned a chainsaw carving artist to make a duplicate of Murphy out of wood for a chainsaw carving in front of the shop, you know? So uh, we're kind of expanding on that too, but um, Murphy's real close because we get a lot of witnesses here at the North American Bigfoot center a lot mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in the height of summer. We probably get 10 a week in the shop or more. 
And then, you know, some of these people had seen Sasquatches at very close range, you know, less than 50 feet and sometimes broad daylight. So with those people, I invite in the back and I, and I said, uh, Hey, here's Murphy nitpick it for me. Tell me what's the same and what's different. And they do. And mm-hmm. for the most part, they go, yeah, yeah, there's longer hair here. The skin was a slightly different shade of color or whatever. And said, but that's all real close. And one guy, one guy, uh, he came in, he's this, this gentleman, um, he came in the sh- shop and he saw a Sasquatch um, last April, this past April out in uh, Skamania County, Washington. He almost hit it in his car, in fact. And um, uh, he swerved and then it was right there in front of his car in the headlights. It's like, and I measured it. He was 12 feet from this animal and the animal's glaring at him right in the headlights. Um, one of his headlights was kind of cockeyed because one of his kids hit a pole or something in the car and it made the, the light go up. So it was like lit up and everything. And um, I brought him in the back and I said, Hey man. And I was looking over at Murphy, like check out Murphy. Tell me what's the, and I look back, the dude's crying. The dude is crying. Say, I remember an episode of the podcast. The guy basically had PTSD after seeing it again. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot yeah, of witnesses was, do a yeah. lot of witnesses, a significant proportion. I wouldn't say like over half, but I'd say 20% mm-hmm. have some level of PTSD after seeing a Sasquatch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's the, uh, I know you guys did a, uh, an episode of the show in, uh, in Parkdale at Solera. I remember that, right? I was yep. living in no. Parkdale at the time. I lived there for about 38 years. Never Never had an encounter, never heard anything. Um, Real squatchy area though, man. I know, I was going to, it is. And I was disappointed after all that time. So what is the squatchiest area of Oregon, do you think? Oh, well, wherever they are, you know, know. well, wherever they are is is the real answer because, um, yeah, because they, they, I used to think that Sasquatches were a wide ranging species, no telling where they're going to be, but the evidence is showing otherwise at this point, mm-hmm. the data that people are collecting indicate that the same animals are hanging out in the same general area. Um, and so, you know, wherever they are basically, you know, like uh, outside Estacada is a good area down the Clackamas river. There's a spot down there by Ripplebrook that kind of has them that hanging out in that general area. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be a group over by Colton. There's another group way back there and the Malala area. I mean, so it's just, where do you want to go? I mean, there, there's somebody saw one in Stevenson and um, someone saw one a year before that in Stevenson, just 2000 feet away from where this guy saw it. So there's a group in that area. Um, I know there's a group over there in uh, outside of Parkdale I, um, because uh, the Dallas watershed has a bunch of sightings. Police officers have seen them inside there and, and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, wherever they are is a really good squatchy area. Um, but where people hear about them being is where people are and Sasquatches are. Because mm-hmm. to have a sighting, you need to have a Sasquatch and a person at the same place. And then the person has to be willing to share that information, which is actually a much larger obstacle than most people would think. Um, uh, most people don't share their Sasquatch reports. Um, and I think, I think it's a conservative guess to say that I hear about 1% of what actually happens in my, in my area. So, you know, that brings up an interesting thing. So, you know, you, we have your podcast, you know, there's the, um, uh, Wes Germer's podcast, right? Sasquatch Chronicles. That's right? by far the the, the, the biggest. Been going for a, a really long time. There's yeah, Wes the, is uh, a friend of mine. Actually, Wes gave us a lot of advice and direction with our podcast. Actually. He's a friend. <clears throat> been listening to him forever. And there's the um, there's, there's at least three or four others, right? That are basically. Oh gosh, everybody and their mother has a podcast, right. and so many people in the big. Many of them are, are basically witness accounts, right? Call in witness accounts. Yeah, people and, love that. You know, that's you know? not me. That's not me. But that's no, that's no. but. Yeah, because humans are a mythological sort. Well, we're not mythological ourselves, but we love mythology. We love stories. The vast majority, the, the vast majority of sure. our history, it was oral tradition. 
Mm-hmm. You know, writing really only came about in the blink of an eye a couple hundred years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, 400 years ago, the printing press or whatever that was. Uh, and, but before that, humans have been around for at least 300,000 years. And for most of that time, we, we were storytelling. So people love the stories. I sure. love the evidence. I'm not a people person. Mm-hmm. I love the evidence. Mm-hmm. Well, what I was thinking is, you know, there's, so there's, say, five podcasts that are nothing but, you know, nothing but stories. They've been going on. Are, do you think there are people that call up all those shows and do their stories over and over? Or oh, yeah, sure, professional sure. storytellers about about Sasquatch? They like to, to tell well, yeah, story. yeah, yeah. I mean, people see that's another thing about the whole Bigfoot thing is that whether they're uh, you don't have to be a liar either. I mean, a lot of people hoax foot, well, some hoax people themselves. hoax footprints, <laughs> but they they hoax stories or whatever. Uh, but mm-hmm. really, even the people who are telling the truth, they kind of learn that they like the attention sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things I learned early on is that when people give me sighting reports, I never say their name mm-hmm. because I don't want people coming to me for attention. I've got, I, I have 1200 sighting reports, mm-hmm. um, none, almost none of which are published mm-hmm. because I don't want to bring people attention because, and for me, it's not about the people. It's about the animals. It's about Sasquatches, you know, and, and, and we humans have a tendency to fall into this idea where it's about, you know, about the witnesses and to some degree it is, but you know, I'm going to protect the witnesses. And if they want attention, they want people to know they saw a Sasquatch. Well, I'm going to protect them from that too. They don't know what they're asking for. That's a good point. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't publish, I don't publish names unless I absolutely have to, for some other compelling reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people will find out very quickly. If you're going to tell me about their setting report, you're not going to get any attention from it um, at all. Cause, and, and honestly, at the end of the day, so what you saw a perfectly normal animal um, how is that going to further the study of the subject at the end right. of the day? Right. Now, don't get me wrong. Sighting reports are important. Um, we, the most recent sighting report we had was uh, about two days, uh, two days and two weeks together. Um, so two weeks ago, this past Monday, um, and, and this is about eight or 10 miles away from where I'm sitting right now. Um, I went up there. I scoured the place for five or six hours that day, found a couple of footprints to hold on. That's, that's important because there's another dot on the map where I have about three or four other dots on the map within a mile or two. That's important. Found a couple impressions. That's important. I saw one run across the road back in 97. What is that? That is a dot on a map is what that is. Um, and it may have changed the witness's life. And I don't want to play that down in any way. It's, it's very personally moving and personally important. But for me, who's heard 5,000 stories just like it, it's just another dot on a map, unfortunately. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like the... Um... So all the podcasts and all the interest in cryptids in general has sort of diluted the impact of the of the legitimacy of Sasquatch research because it, it bleeds into so many woo things, dogmen, and you know all that kind of stuff. I mean, do you feel like that that has sort of negatively impacted the the Sasquatch phenomenon or research or the way people sure. view it because it's kind of lumped in with those things. Yeah. Certain aspects of everybody and their mother having a podcast and a voice on Facebook, et cetera, mm-hmm. certain aspects have been damaged in my opinion. Um, I think hoaxes damage the credibility of the subject because hoaxes are what the um, skeptics always point to that. Yeah. And who's going to deny that? Yes, indeed there are hoaxes, but there's also things that have not been shown to be hoaxes that in my opinion, cannot be hoaxed. Um, and I think that um, lumping Sasquatches in with other paranormal phenomenon is also a huge mistake and it doesn't serve the subject well at all. Mm-hmm. I think that does a tremendous amount of damage to the credibility of the subject. 
And um, and and I'm I'm certain probably I imagine some of your listeners think that Sasquatches are paranormal, and probably goring their sacred cow to some degree. But um, I'm an evidence-based researcher, and uh, why should I believe someone who tells me that they're doing things that are unsubstantiated by evidence? Like, why should I? I, I think that we should all raise our standard of um, uh, critical thinking and evidence to a level where like, uh, just because somebody says it doesn't make it true. And that's true of Sasquatches as well. Just because someone says that they're a hominin or an ape species or whatever category you want to put them in doesn't mean it's true unless there's evidence to support that. Um, and when I hear the paranormal uh, community, you know, bellowing at me, they're very upset at me because I, I, I just kind of poo-poo a lot of it. And, not, and by the way, weird things exist. The universe is not only weirder than you think, it's weirder than you can think. I am way on board with weird stuff. I'm a mm-hmm. weird guy in general, mm-hmm. but after all the evidence and stuff that's been collected, it doesn't seem that Sasquatch is one of those things. Right. They might do a couple things and nothing else does, but it doesn't seem like that. But mm-hmm. when the paranormal people are, some of them say that they're, they're um, UFO, right? And interdimensional stuff. Some of them say they're not from this planet. Some of them say they're from inside the hollow earth, inside the planet. Some of them say that they are angels. Some of them mm-hmm. say that they're devils. Some of them say mm-hmm. that they are forest protectors. Some of them say that they're tree spirits. So and you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. None of that stuff agrees with one another either. Why would I believe any of that, right? Unless the evidence shows that. Mm -hmm. And so far, um, the evidence shows that they're pretty normal animals. They don't really do anything all that spectacular for the most part. And if they are UFO, right, and shape-shifting, interdimensional, whatever's, why why are they eating roadkill, man? Why are they digging through the trash can? Why can't they just go to the holodeck and, and order a steak sandwich? Absolutely. So you mentioned our listeners. I think our listeners are probably generally very unfamiliar uh, with Sasquatch and and cryptids in general. I mean, I forget there are people like that. Yeah, there are. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we know, but the, you know, these are people listening to a music podcast about orchestra music, so might not be the same Venn diagram. I'm not sure. So maybe just two quick questions. I know you got to go, but question one is for the people who are totally uninitiated, how would you define a cryptid in general? Just one sentence. What's a cryptid oh. to you? <clears throat> cryptid is an animal that has yet to be discovered and recognized by science. Mm-hmm. And cryptid, by the way, it, that comes from the idea of cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. Crypto is a Greek word that means like hidden and then zoology is a study of animals. So the study of hidden animals or animals that are not yet recognized by science. So a cryptid is a term for an animal that's not yet recognized sure. by science. And then my next question is, what if, if I was going to ask you right today, what do you think is the single most compelling piece of evidence for Sasquatch, not footcast as a general rule or not the Patterson-Gimlin film, but I mean, what do you think is, you had to have one thing in your museum that was the most compelling single piece of evidence, what would it be? I get that question all the I'm time. I'm sure you do. And, 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 that is, and there is no answer for that mm-hmm. because um, like one thing, one thing alone out of context isn't very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at the, the footprint cast evidence, for example, uh, one particular cast, you can say, oh, that's interesting. Look how um, there you can, there's features there that are clearly indicative of ape anatomy and non-human and human ancestor anatomy, um, the flexibility in the mid part of the foot. Well, that's all fine and good. That's really neat. But did you know that you can see that same feature in the Patterson-Gimlin film? You know, the, the skookum heel cast, you can see that same feature in that cast as well. The elongation of the heel, which is a consequence of the uh, mm-hmm. redesign of the foot. So it, that's kind of like saying, Hey, look at this, look at this puzzle, this jigsaw puzzle, this thousand piece jigsaw puzzle in which of these pieces 
is the kitty in the mug that's going to mm-hmm. be the final picture? And which mm-hmm. of these pieces is that kitty the prettiest? You can't do it. You, you well, you can, but the 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 it's kind of a it's, it's an empty answer because it's not about that one puzzle piece. It's about the puzzle in general. That when you stand back and you look at it, you go, "Oh yeah, that is a look. It's a kitten in a mug," you know. But uh, but in the but this piece isn't going to show it. You might be able to see the eye or the whiskers or something, but, and, and so one cast or one piece of footage is it's that it's cumulative for sure. Yeah. yeah. If I had to say one mm-hmm. piece would be the Patterson Gimlin film because mm-hmm. the Patterson Gimlin film um, supports the footprint cast evidence. It mm-hmm. supports the idea that this is some sort of relic hominoid. It supports what uh, the Patterson Gimlin film actually um, predated and predicted future finds in paleoanthropology. Mm-hmm. So if I had to say one piece of evidence, it would be that, but the PG film isn't going to convince anybody, but knowing how the PG film is congruent and supports the footprint cast evidence and the other hand evidence or the hand cast evidence and the other in primatology, like all that's, that's what's compelling. Mm-hmm. That's what you can't like turn your nose up to when it comes to Bigfoot evidence. Cool. Well, I, I, I was kind of feeding that question. I kind of predicted your answer, but I know a lot of people, you know, think that way, you know, that here's, if we just had this one thing, no. you know, we could just put it to rest and it's no, well, that's true. That one thing know. is going to be a dead body. Sure. Yeah. That's unfortunate, but I mean, I didn't write the rules, but those are the rules. I'm not trying to shoot one. I'm not a gun guy. I've got a couple of mm-hmm. firearms, but I'm no means a gun guy. I know mm-hmm. gun guys. I'm not one mm-hmm. of them, but, um, but that's not going to be me pulling the trigger. I just, I can't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even deer hunt. I just can't do it. You know, <laughs> and man, imagine what a frightening situation that would be to uh, having pulled a trigger on a Sasquatch and it ran off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not cool. Anyway, I'm, 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 I'm sorry you can't come and do our uh, narration, but I totally understand. I think uh, people are going to really enjoy this. What we're doing, this piece is called a Sasquatch portrait. And um, it was sort of inspired by, I don't know if you know, Aaron Copeland's Lincoln portrait, Mm -hmm. very famous, you know, a piece from the forties. And I thought at first, well, that would be kind of a funny substitution, but then it kind of went beyond a joke. So the first movement is actually the paleoanthropologist Pological evidence for Sasquatch, and the second movement is a witness report, and the third movement is Native American uh, stories about Hairy Man, and then the fourth movement is sort of these questions, kind of exactly where we started. If it, if you know, if there isn't Sasquatch, how did this happen? If there isn't, how did this happen? So it's kind of these open-ended questions. So I think I think people are going to really enjoy it. I know the orchestra is enjoyed performing it and, and rehearsing it we're kind of in this witness report uh chapter we're kind of blending the um sierra sounds with orchestral instruments oh yeah ron was just in the museum this past weekend i was oh, out of yeah. town but ron came by the museum to say hi and i wasn't even here ron oh, nice. moorhead the guy who got the sierra mm-hmm. sounds and yeah mm-hmm. he's released them on cds i know right yeah, yeah. the greatest hits well um tell us where people can find you um on the internet Oh God! You throw a rock far enough, you're gonna. I hit know. It. Um, yeah. So, uh, where do you want them to find you? How about that? <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of people track me down just to throw rocks at me. It turns out that's what Facebook seems to be good at. Kind of like let's let's show everybody what mental illness I have. Everybody seems to do that on Facebook. So anyway, um, yeah, obviously I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, and but not only is Cliff Berrickman on those three things, you can also find the museum, the North American Bigfoot Center, and also the podcast Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. And of course, each one of those three entities, uh, Cliff, the museum, and the podcast has their own separate website as well, cliffberrickman.com, 
NorthAmericanBigfootCenter.com and BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com. That's awesome. Well, if you ever want to come to uh, the Gorge and play some music, you know, hit me oh. up. I can hook you up with some people. We could do some things. I, I, um, we have a big band. We always love to have people come in and play with us. So, oh, fun. I don't, I don't know if we've ever had a seven-string guitar player come. Yeah, it's just, it's just guitar at the end of the day. I know with another, with another string, right? Uh huh. Right. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Cliff. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate you. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. happily ever after.